take the Word of God with you together and to teach its truths. If you would, I'd like to invite you to turn to the book of Ephesians. We have, as you know, been going through a verse-by-verse study of this wonderful epistle of Paul to the Ephesian believers. And we have thus far, in the time that we have studied this great letter, gone through chapters 1, 2, and 3. And we find ourselves now in chapter 4, the chapter that begins the so-called practicalities that were based upon the theological foundations of chapters 1, 2, and 3. And in chapter 4, we find ourselves occupied with the grand theme of unity in Christ. How we as believers, especially on a horizontal level, can achieve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace because it has been vouchsafed to us by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives us this bond of unity and of peace together because of our mutual relationship to Jesus Christ. And in chapter 4, we find from the very first verse all the way through the chapter really, but certainly through verse 16, uh, the kind of teaching from Paul that is very practical and gives us a sense of our duty to one another. We talked last time about the vertical relationship that we have in Christ as we have one body, one spirit, one hope, one call or one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all. And that really speaks to the vertical realities of the unity that we share because of our common union in Christ. And then we have horizontal opportunities as well to achieve even greater unity among one another. And that, of course, is listed for us there in the first three verses, walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called with all humility and gentleness, patience, tolerance, love, and peace. And those six Christian virtues are what have occupied our minds and hearts for the last couple of weeks as we've endeavored to see both this horizontal and vertical unity that is ours in Christ. And we find ourselves now embarking upon a larger section in chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Chapter 4, verse 7, running all through as it does, verse 16. So what I'd like to do is start back with chapter 4, verse 1, and read the entirety of this section, verses 1 through verse 16, and then we'll concentrate tonight on verses 7, 8, 9, and 10. You follow along as I read here in the English Standard Version of our Bibles. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, 
so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, as I mentioned to you, in that first three verses of chapter 4, we have the horizontal relationship that we share with each other with these six Christian virtues as I mentioned them. And then I told you that there's a vertical dimension of our relationship to the Lord and what He provides for us in all of those seven phrases that begin with the word one. And I think the Apostle Paul is giving us here another sense of our horizontal relationship as we have been given gracious things by God for ministry's sake. For truly, Paul says here in verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us. And he makes that phrase, each one of us, mean for us that there is again a horizontal focus as he focused that same thing in verses 1, 2, and 3. And those Christian virtues, those six Christian virtues that are listed there. And now he returns to the idea of the horizontal when he talks about gracious gifts being given to us. And this is going to be another theme that the Apostle Paul uses to nail down the idea of our unity together as we minister to each other in the body of Christ. Clearly in verse 7, he speaks of grace being given, again on that horizontal level, uh, level to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And so this particular idea of Paul going back and forth, back and forth, horizontal relationships, the six Christian virtues, gentleness, humility, patience, tolerance, love, and peace. And how does that work itself out in our lives? It works itself out because of our vertical relationship that God provides for the body, this this spiritual union, this hope of our calling, this Lord Jesus Christ, this faith collectively in Him, this baptism under the banner of one God and Father of all. And so vertically, God gives us all of those things to cement our unity in Christ. And He gives us the opportunity to work together in a horizontal relationship of the gentleness, of the patience, of the humility, of the tolerance, love, and peace that He's called us to. Very, very practical section. And lest somebody think that these Christian virtues and grace being given to us is something that is engineered on our own, Paul wants to remind us of some things about the Lord Jesus Christ. And he does that here in verses 7 through 10. And I want to give you tonight three affirmations of our Savior that is given to us here that nails down the concept of Christ being the head of His body and Christ giving us grace ministries to carry out for His namesake. I want to give you these three affirmations of the person of Christ in verses 7 through 10 before we ever get to the idea that the body is to take these gracious ministries we've been given and begin to work them out practically as chapter 4 will go on to tell us. And why does Paul do this? I think he does it because he's trying to remind us again about Christ the head of the body so that we would never lose sight of who is giving us these gracious things. So, number one. Number one. Christ is the gracious giver of ministry gifts which matures the church. I want you to write that down. Christ 
is the gracious giver of ministry gifts which matures the church. Now why would Paul say this? Well, he wants to say it because he wants to emphasize again and again and again in this context that it is Christ and Christ alone who is the one who dispenses ministry graces. And I say that term advisedly, ministry graces. Now I know, of course, it uses the idea of gift here, according to the measure of Christ's gift. And one thing I want to clarify, especially as we talk about spiritual gifts or spiritual giftedness, is this. You know when you receive a gift, say you're a little child and you are so eager to receive under the Christmas tree those gifts on December 25th. And when you receive that gift, it is something, of course, yes, that you are given, and we understand that very well, but when Paul talks about gifts here, he's not, he's not talking about something that I'm endowed with. He's not really talking about something uh, that is my ability to do work for Christ. Spiritual gifts, and there are four places, by the way, where spiritual gifts are talked about, and we're going to look at a few of them tonight. Those four places are 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, here in Ephesians 4, and then again in 1 Peter 4. It's very easy to remember because you have 12, 12, 4, and 4. You have 1 Corinthians 12, you have Romans 12, you have Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. And in those sections, Paul gives lists of ministry opportunities, not spiritual gifts. We need to sort of work our way away from the concept that I've been endowed, like at Christmas time, I've been endowed, I've been given an ability by God to do ministry. Now that, of course, is the common understanding of spiritual gifts. And I don't want to get too far away from that as though I think it's absolutely wrong. I just think it's probably wrong, okay? Because when Paul talks about these spiritual ministries, these gracious opportunities, what he's talking about is you and I seeing needs in the body of Christ and working toward meeting those needs. He's not talking about something that I've been endowed with as though I can only minister in the church if I have, quote-unquote, the gift of dot, dot, dot. No, he's just saying, basically, you and I have ministry opportunities. And in order to glorify God, what you and I must do is pursue ministry opportunities that we see that are evident in the body of Christ and we ought to pursue those to the glory of God. Now, of course, we're going to talk about pastors and teachers in here in chapter 4 and what their role is, and they certainly are given in the body of Christ by Christ Himself as the head for certain purposes, and they have certain abilities. That's true. But I want us to suggest in our minds as we go through chapter 4 that the reason Paul is speaking the way he does here in verse 7 and following is to make us clear that it is Christ as the head of his body who gives us ministry responsibilities to carry out. Spiritual opportunities to pursue. And I want to show you this. Christ is that gracious giver of ministry gifts which mature the church. And here's one way he does it. Look at verse 11. It says, And He gave. And He gave. Now that's very important because in verse 7, but grace was given. And do you realize that the, the word grace is the word charis? And when you go to your translations, like even the ESV, for example, to 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, you're going to find that the word that is often translated from the word charis or the word charismata is the word gift. And if you're not careful, you're going to understand that word gift 
as something that the Holy Spirit gave me at the point of my salvation in order to manifest that giftedness in the body, as though that's the only one thing that I'm responsible for in that body. It's my gift, or it's my giftedness. And while, again, I don't think that's totally wrong, I think it's steering us away from a concept that's true in all of those passages. And what is that? It is this, that grace, the word charis, and the word give is used almost in every one of those passages to talk about what God has given us, and that is grace. He's given every believer grace, and He's given that believer grace in order to be involved in any kind of spiritual ministry. Any kind of spiritual ministry. Whatever it may be. And it moves itself away from me trying to concentrate on what my gift is. How am I gifted? What does the Lord want me to do in my spiritual giftedness? And the focus, frankly, becomes on the person rather than the opportunity which is outside the person. You see what I'm saying? We should no longer concentrate in the spiritual gift area on what I have been given some ability to do. Rather, I should concentrate on what I see as needs in the body of Christ and I should accept that God wants to graciously give me an opportunity to pursue ministry toward others. Now, I know this is sort of uh, cutting cross-grain against so much of what you and I may have been taught in the past regarding spiritual gifts. But I want you to look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And again, I want to show you why I think this is right teaching from the Apostle Paul, who of course is the author of 1 Corinthians and Romans 12 and Ephesians 4. In fact, most of the time that that concept of grace given, grace given, grace given, occurs in Paul, and I think the only time it doesn't occur in Paul is the one passage there in 1 Peter, and it's used by Peter, and that also is talking about grace being given. 1 Corinthians 12, 1. Now, concerning spiritual gifts. Now again, as I said, you need to be careful because if you're going to lapse into this concept of gifts being something that God has endowed me personally as a Christian to minister to the body of Christ. I think it's something different. And what does he say? Verse 4. Now, there are varieties of gifts. And by the way, gifts, that's where we get that word charis. Okay? So let's just change it to, now there are varieties of graces. There are varieties of graces, but the same Spirit, the same Holy Spirit. And there are varieties of service or ministry, that's the word for for ministry, but the same Lord, speaking of the Lord Jesus. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. And then notice the very next verse, to each is what? Given. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And what kind of manifestation is that? It's not your endowed spiritual gift, it's God's grace being given to you so that you can look and perceive and see what ministry needs are out there in the body of Christ, and then you're seeking to meet those needs, whatever they are. So it works itself away from you and it works itself more onto perceiving others and what they need from you to minister to them. And that, I think, is a far more other-centered perspective than how we can sometimes be caught in this selfish idea, I might even say, that I have to find out what my spiritual giftedness is. 
I have to found out, find out where God has, has endowed me with this ability or that ability. And if someone has a need out there and I don't have that spiritual gift, then I can't meet that need because that's not my gift. And I've been in churches and I've been in contexts where people have had that kind of mindset where I can't do that particular ministry because that's not my spiritual gift. And I think, again, because of teaching and because sometimes even in translations like this, you and I might be led to believe that I have to focus more on me and what I've been endowed with and less on the needs that I see around me. And I think Paul is talking here in 1 Corinthians 12 as he does in Ephesians 4 and he uses that same formula. Grace is given. Grace is given. And what grace is it? God's grace. It's not God's salvation grace. It's God's sanctification grace to help other believers to minister to them in their time of need, whatever that need may be. Grace is given. You could say it this way. Grace is given for the moment. Grace is given for the activity. Grace is given for the ministry. Grace is given when there's a need. And God gives us grace to meet those needs. And what are some of those needs? He says, verse 8, to one is given, there's our word again, through the Spirit, the utterance of wisdom. You say, what might that mean? Just being wise and giving someone a wise word from the Word of God. Giving them wisdom, giving them counsel from the Word of God. And to another, utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. That's your knowledge of the Word of God. And you're imparting that knowledge of the Word of God to them. To another, faith by the same Spirit. Encouraging someone to have a deeper level of conscious trust and abiding reliance upon God. Encouraging them and they themselves being encouraged to increase their faith. To another, Gifts of healing by the one Spirit. You, of course, of course, know that the canon of Scripture had not been closed by the time this was written. And so revelation was still being given and healing was occurring. Verse 10, to another, the working of miracles. Miracles were still extant that day by the working of the apostles and those closely associated with them. To another, prophecy. There were still New Testament prophets by the time 1 Corinthians was still being written. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. All of these supernatural manifestations of the Holy Spirit were going on even at this time before the canon of Scripture was closed. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. And someone's going to say, yes, that verse seems to suggest, verse 11, that He's going to apportion some spiritual gift to you. No, I would beg to differ. He's going to apportion His grace and He'll give it to you, He apportions it to you, for a specific need at a specific time so that you can minister to that need. That's more of what he's saying here. And then he goes into a discussion about what we could say is the indivisibility of the body. For just as the body is one, and then he talks about the individuality of the body, and has many members, all of the members and all the members of the body, though many Indivisibility are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. And then from verses 14 all the way through the chapter, he again talks about the body of Christ and how we're to minister to one another. So what's the point? The point is, that what Paul does here in 1 Corinthians 12 and what he's intending to do in chapter 4, verse 7 is to say Christ, the head of His church, is the gift giver and He gives these gracious gifts to mature the body of Christ. That's what He does. Look at Romans chapter 12. Romans 12. And I want you to see this same language. Chapter 12, verse 3. It comes right up front here. For by the grace given. Very important. For by the grace given. 
To me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And again, someone's going to say, well, see, God has measured out a, a faith, a faith of some kind that God has assigned, and that sounds like those spiritual gifts, and we even have sometimes a spiritual gifts inventory that people have to fill out, Uh, What do you like? Uh, What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? And if you fill out this spiritual gifts inventory, then you sort of come down at the end and it equals your spiritual gift. And sometimes you can sort of lock yourself in uh, to a bad habit of assuming that that's the only way you can minister in the body of Christ. Well, that's that's my gift. And so I'm going to foster that gift. I'm going to work on that gift. I'm going to strengthen that gift. And when someone comes along and says, yes, but we have a need over here. And we have something to do over there. Well, I can't do that because that's not my gift. Because you see, I took a spiritual gifts inventory. And I found out that that's not my gift, so I can't do that. So I'm sorry, I'm not going to be able to minister in that way. No, what he's talking about is God, through Christ, giving you grace to do ministry. Verse 4, For as in one body... We have many members. One body, there's the indivisibility of it. We have many members, there's the individuality of it. And the members do not all have the same function. That's obvious. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts, and maybe there's that translation issue again, gifts, how about graces? Having graces, ways to minister to people, Generally speaking, having graces that differ according to the grace given to us, and I believe that's grace for the moment, grace for the need, grace for the opportunity that you see in front of you, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes or the giving of money in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness, cheerfulness you say how does that flesh itself out in the body of christ if someone needs a teacher you ought to consider teaching you say yeah but i have to have some ability to do that yes you do but it doesn't mean that the only people who can teach in the body of christ is the preacher it doesn't mean that the only person uh, who ought to be exhorting in the body of christ is the one who exhorts the one who contributes or gives money in generosity how many people in the body of christ could do that A lot of people. A lot of people. That's just not uh, relegated to one person who has the so-called spiritual gift of generosity. You see, we pigeonhole ourselves if we move ourselves into that sort of uh, I only do one thing category. No, I just minister. I just minister to those in need. So go back to Ephesians chapter 4. And that's the sense, my friends of what verse 7 is talking about. But grace was given. It's that same language. Grace was given to each one, each member of the body of Christ, according to the apportionment or the measure of Christ's gift. And why does he say it that way? Because Christ is the gracious giver of ministry opportunities which mature the church. Ministry opportunities. And if you want to call it a gift, you can call it a gift. It's the gift of helping people. It's the gift of ministering. It's the gift of reaching out to people. It's the gift of seeing a need and endeavoring to meet that need. We had the opportunity yesterday to help one of our our new families in the church move into their new home. And it was a tremendous blessing. Why? Because it was their very first home And it was so exciting to see them excited about their first home. That's what brings joy to your heart. That's what brings you to the place of you saying, well, I don't have the gift of uh, back-breaking labor. I don't have the gift of picking up boxes. No, if you have the opportunity and if you see a need then you have spiritual giftedness at that moment. You have opportunity to meet the needs of those around you. And Christ apportions both the grace ministry opportunity and the need, and in His sovereignty, because He's the head of the body, 
He orchestrates all of this so that you and I can hear about those opportunities or we see these opportunities and we endeavor to meet those opportunities as the needs arise. That's what he's talking about. And in the context of chapter 4, he'll go on to talk about doctrinal purity. He'll go on to talk about doctrinal uh, specificity, doctrinal integrity, doctrinal fidelity. And when he talks about those things, yes, it's talking about doctrine, and yes, he's talking about pastor-teachers, but remember, the pastor-teachers, as we'll study it later, are, are teaching us to equip us to do the work of ministry. It's not just that they're doing it, it's that they're teaching us how to do it as well, including having doctrinal fidelity. So that's number one. Christ is the gracious giver of ministry opportunities or gifts which mature the church. Number two, number two, Christ is the divine warrior who reigns victoriously over all his foes. Christ is the divine warrior, the divine warrior who reigns victoriously over all his foes. Now I know this sounds again a, a, a little bit interesting coming out of a discussion about Christ dispensing ministry opportunities. But what's he talking about here? Look at verses 8 and 9. Therefore, which then ties it, of course, to verse 7, therefore it says, a particular psalm in the Old Testament, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? And you might be saying at this point, I am totally confused. What in the world does that have to do with Christ as the head of the church giving us ministry opportunities as a gracious giver? It has everything to do with it. I want you to look at that psalm. It's Psalm 68. Psalm 68. And Paul quotes that psalm because he believes that there is some kind of opportunity in Psalm 68 to see a parallel with what's going on here in Ephesians chapter 4. And what is it? It's an opportunity to see Jesus Christ because Paul is thinking Christologically here in chapter 4, even though Psalm 68 is talking about God the Father, Yahweh, Paul is seeing this fulfilled Christologically. That is, he sees it fulfilled in Christ. And let me work you through this, all right? Psalm 68. We won't have time to read it all, but we'll read a few sections of it. For instance, the very thing that Paul quoted in verse 18. Now the background is this, Psalm 68 is talking about God being the divine warrior who protects his people Israel and he vanquishes all Israel's foes. That is, of course, ultimately and finally. They had all of their captivities because of their sin, but ultimately Psalm 68 from David here is talking about a promise that God will ultimately vanquish all all of Israel's foes, and that God does it because He is, on behalf of Israel, the divine warrior. And what He says in verse 18 is this, You, speaking of Yahweh, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, or in your wake, and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. What He's saying is this, God, the divine warrior, has vanquished Israel's foes. And in those ancient times, when the conquering king was able to subdue the enemy, they had, by obligation, to come and present gifts to that divine warrior. The divine warrior was victorious. And because he led these captives and subdued them to a place of subjugation, they were subject to this divine warrior and because they were defeated they had to bring gifts to that divine warrior as the king who vanquished his foes 
And Psalm 68 is talking about our Lord, our Lord God, Yahweh God, being that divine warrior. And why does Paul seemingly out of nowhere pick up this quote and dump it right in Ephesians 4? Because, remember Ephesians, remember this city, and remember that this was a city that was involved in all kinds of black magic, right? It was a city that was involved with the worship of the great god Diana, or the other name that they used for this god, Artemis. And there were many other gods, there were many other angels, there were many other spirits, and the pagan Gentile worshippers of the city of Ephesus would worship these gods and try to placate these gods and to try to win the favor of these gods so that they could have a happy life. And when Paul comes along and he begins to preach the gospel through the apostles and those closely associated with them, including himself, which was really Christ doing it through these men, the salvation that they were granted was the salvation that vanquished all of God's foes from a spiritual dimension. And Paul must have been thinking about Psalm 68. And he must have been thinking about the Lord God, Yahweh Himself. Just as a rabbinic teacher as Paul was, he probably had read Psalm 68 many, many times. And when he got to Ephesus, and when he saw all of the pagan idols, when he saw the Diana Temple, the Artemis Temple, and we saw, when he saw all of that, and he saw that Jesus Christ needed to vanquish all of these powers, all of these principalities, all these dark figures of the underworld. And when Christ was victorious in bringing people to salvation, these very Ephesian Gentiles, it was a marvelous thing. And Paul, thinking back to Psalm 68, takes that very verse, verse 18, and he says, this is actually fulfilled in Christ right here, right now, because He is the divine warrior and He has victoriously vanquished all His foes from a spiritual vantage point. That's what He's talking about. You say, how did that come about? Look back at Ephesians. How did it come about? I'll tell you how it came about. Look at chapter 1, verse 19. And listen to that power language again and think back to Psalm 68. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power, speaking of God's power in Christ, toward us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. No black magic, no Artemis, no underworld figure, no demon host, no spirit creature, no spirit being could be vanquished and then rise from the dead. And it appeared as though Satan had Christ on that cross and that he was going to die never to rise again. But God raised him from the dead, according to verse 20, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And how far did this... uh, divine warrior and his rule extend verse 21 far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come and i've told you before that that's a hierarchy of terms that speak about evil rulers evil powers far above all rule and authority and power and dominion look at chapter 3 Verse 9, the plan of God is to bring light for everyone, and that is the plan of the mystery ages, um, the, the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church, through us, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. See, Paul has this on his mind. He has Psalm 68 on his mind. In fact, if you look back with your finger in Ephesians 4, you're going to see in Psalm 68 even references to power. And this is what Paul is thinking about. Look at verse 28 of Psalm 68. Summon your power, O God. 
the power, O God, by which You have worked for us. Rebuke the beasts, verse 30, that dwell among the reeds, the herd of bulls with the calves of the people. Trample underfoot those who lust after tribute. Scatter the peoples who delight in war. Nobles shall come from Egypt. Cush shall hasten to stretch out her hands to God. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God. Sing praises to the Lord, to Him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens. Behold, He sends out His voice, His mighty voice. Ascribe power to God, whose majesty is over Israel and whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God from His sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to His people. Blessed be God. And what evokes in Paul's mind is this very same idea. God's power. The power to raise Jesus Christ from the dead. And it comes to Paul's mind under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Do you know who the divine warrior is? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. He's the fulfillment of Psalm 68. He's the one who has the power. The power is to be ascribed to Him. He's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Even when Paul prays in chapter 3, what does he say? That He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. Verse 20, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than we Uh, than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Power, power, power. And who has that power? Christ has that power. Why? Because He's the divine warrior. And He's going to vanquish all of His foes. There is not one single magic incantation There's not one hideous spell that can be placed upon you. I can imagine that there were people in Ephesus who were confronted with the gospel, who had been worshiping Artemis, and who had been told that Christ was the power of God, and they might have said something like this, yeah, yeah, I've heard that before. In fact, I've been doing everything I can to ascribe ultimate power to Artemis, and my life is still a wreck. And Paul says, Let me show you the true power of God in that He raised Christ from the dead. And if you bow your knee to King Jesus, the powerful divine warrior, you'll see liberation like you've never experienced it before. And they were saved and He put on them, did God, the very power of Christ in raising Christ from the dead and He gave them this power so that they would not be worried or chagrined anymore about the power, the so-called black magic of Ephesus. And they were instantly changed and affirmed the very power of God. Now, I don't have time to get into it, but when verses 8 and 9 say, and He gave gifts to men, if you're reading carefully in Psalm 68, verse 18, it says this divine warrior who vanquished his foes received gifts from men. And Paul says here, He gave gifts to men. How is it that it seems opposite of what Psalm 68:18 says? Well, the Hebrew text, the Masoretic text, and the Septuagint, the Septuagint text, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, has what our English Bibles say. But there are a couple of others. There's an Aramaic Targum, and there's the Syriac Peshitta. Now, I'm not going to give you a test on this. None of you will have to know this later. But those two translations have more of what Paul has in mind here. And if Paul was actually reading from those texts, he was certainly aware of the Masoretic text, and he was certainly aware, undoubtedly, of the Septuagintal text. But apparently, he changed it because he believed that it was more in line with the very point of Psalm 68. He gave, that is Christ, He gave gifts to men. Why? Because He vanquished all His foes and when those foes gave Him the booty, He turned around and He gave gifts to men so that they could minister in the body of Christ. He gave them grace opportunities. And then you see at the end of verse 
9, or the beginning of verse 9 through the end of verse 9, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? What's he talking about there? Especially that phrase, the lower parts of the earth. Well, there are three or four reasonable interpretations about what Paul is referring to here. One is that this ascending and descending language is simply a reference to Christ having the vanquishing power to subdue these demon hosts and he descended from his ascended place in heaven and when he died on that cross and when he was ascended back to the Father and he was given this rightful rule as the sovereign warrior king, he then was able to say resurrection from the dead, vanquishing all of these powers, all of these these authorities by virtue of his resurrection. That's a possible interpretation. There are some who say, no, it wasn't that he ascended, although he did do that. It was more the idea of his descension to the earth in the form of his death, his burial, and his resurrection from the dead. And the idea of his descension into the lower parts of the earth was the tomb. It was the tomb in which he was laid. And then three days later, he broke through that tomb as the ascended Lord after 40 days, And that's what Paul is referring to here when he says the lower parts of the earth. Some people say, no, it's probably not that. It's probably a reference simply simply to the resurrection and the ascension. And again, we don't know with certainty exactly what this means, but we do know this. Whether it's Christ vanquishing his foes, whether it's vanquishing his foes by virtue of his resurrection from the dead, or the empty tomb, or simply the cross... I think it may be a combination of all of those things. And the lower parts of the earth, it might not be under the earth, it might not be the tomb, it might simply be the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Because He was the ascended Lord, He was the second member of the Godhead, He came to this earth in a descending position, and He died on that cross, and He ascended on the 40th day, and when He did so, He was the vanquisher of all foes, including all demon hosts including those black magicians in Ephesus. Number three, and finally for tonight. Number three, Christ is the conquering sovereign whose lordship extends over everything. He's the conquering sovereign whose lordship extends over everything. Look at verse 10. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens heavens in plural, always in plural, that He might fill all things. What does He mean here? He simply means that because Christ is the sovereign of the universe, He's going to fill more and more and more of the things of this earth and the things under the earth and all of the heavens with the fullness of His sovereignty. That's what he's referring to. The fullness of his sovereignty. Look back at chapter 1, verse 23. The fullness of him who fills all in all. That he might fill all things. Look at chapter 3, verse 19. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This language from Pleroma. It's the idea that Christ will inevitably be sovereign over everything and everyone because He's the conquering sovereign. He's the divine warrior and He's the gracious giver. Now, I know this has been somewhat technical tonight and I know that this doesn't sound practical at all. But you know, in a sense, think about our Christ. Think about the Lord Jesus. He's the head of the body. We've been taught that in Ephesians. And he's now being said by Paul to be the gracious giver, the divine warrior, and the conquering sovereign. And the Ephesus believers needed to know that. And you know, we live in a country in which we have so many liberties and so many opportunities and very little persecution. And it seems very little understanding, if not very little dealing with the kinds of demon hosts and the kind of black magic 
that they had in Ephesus. But if you and I lived in cultures like the animism of Africa, like the ancestor worship of Asia, you and I would probably be more in tune and more seeing this as relevant than we do here in the good old U.S. of A. And when Christ is seen as the gracious giver and the divine warrior and the conquering sovereign, that should give all of us great hope, great affirmation that we serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And no matter what our country turns out to be, and no matter what we are up against in the days ahead, we serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, even before we talk about the body of Christ being equipped for ministry's sake, we have to pause and we have to thank You for our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the gracious giver of all ministry opportunities. He is the divine warrior who victoriously vanquishes all his foes. And he is that conquering sovereign whose lordship extends everywhere. And we want to pause. And we want to thank you, dear Lord Jesus. We can be so busy about our lives. We can even be so busy in ministry in the church. And we lose sight even ghastly so, of the Lordship of Jesus Christ through our busyness. And this is a reminder of Paul not to lose sight of the head of the church, not to lose sight of the gracious giver, the divine warrior, the conquering sovereign. He has vanquished all powers. There is not one single molecule in His universe that is out of control. And we can rest in that grand fact. So Father, thank You for the gracious gifts You've given us through Him. Thank You for seeing Christ as is Yourself, the divine warrior. Thank You that He's the conquering sovereign whose rule, whose fullness of lordship will extend to everything. And one day, there is not one animistic religion in our world. There is not one ancestral worshiper in our galaxy. And there's not one person in the West who is dabbling in some kind of black magic who will not bow ultimately and finally to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that as we continue in this series, especially speaking of the kinds of ministry opportunities to mature the body, that we not forget the head of the body. And may He continue to reign victoriously in and through our lives in this body because Paul has pointed us to Him yet again. We thank You. We praise You for this Lord Jesus Christ in whom we pray. Amen.